Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Live Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. We are, I think, what, in program number six here, episode number six. We are moving our way through this very long book. I I think uh, it took us, what, almost a year to get through the book of Genesis, so we are just going to take as long as we need to take as we go through this narrative verse by verse, because... As I noted in a talk last night, you know, <laughs> there are, what, uh, 789,650 words in the Bible. <laughs> okay, that's a lot of words with a lot of verses. And yet, the real fascinating thing is, every word, every verse is inspired by God. So, it would be for us to take due diligence into that simple truth and examine the text one verse in light of the next, and then so on and so forth. So this is what we do here on Seeds of Truth, specifically, of course, with our study on the book of Exodus. Now, before we jump into uh, chapter 3, I do just want to continue to welcome all of you who are taking time out of your busy schedules to tune into uh, Seeds of Truth, especially those who are listening by way of podcast in uh, foreign countries. I see on the grid uh, still Canada, Mexico, some countries down there in South, uh, South America, Brazil, Argentina, uh, Chile, certainly also in Western Europe, Italy, Spain, Portugal, France. I see Croatia, India, Turkey, some countries in Africa, Nigeria, Kenya. I, I teach for the Avila Institute, and there are students I have from Africa, and I know they are listening as well. So I welcome all of you into the friendly confines of the radio station here in Chico, California, Northern California, pray for us as, once again, this region of Northern California is being hit with fires. All right, all that being said, as we move into chapter 3, we are introduced to a significant change, really, in the drama of the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. And is this not what we think about when we hear about the book of Exodus, right? So from God's providential dealings in the life of the nation Israel, now uh, we move to God's direct intervention through Moses and the miracles performed by him. So in that then, I think we could also say we move from the silence of God over the past 400 years to God speaking directly to Moses from the bush and later on from that same mountain. Certainly, my friends, we could say the book of Exodus 3 begins a new revelation into the God who is deeply personal. In the book of Genesis, he walked in the cool of the day with Adam. All throughout the book of Genesis, we read of God walking with the patriarchs. In the book of Exodus, God is is more than just walking, but revealing his very identity. And that is such a key distinction. And I want to hammer that home this evening. Chapter 3, then, is a significant point of transition. 
It begins with the revelation of God to Moses from the midst of the burning bush. It develops with the commissioning of Moses to go back to Egypt and the Pharaoh and to deliver God's people from their oppression and from their bondage. It ends with the beginnings of Moses, uh, his, his reticence and his resistance that we will talk a lot about toward the task which God has given him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this drama that encircles Moses is really the drama of a larger group of people. Another important point for us, just not this evening, but really all throughout our study on the book of Exodus. This chapter brings to light, really, that it's more than just the account of a life-changing incident in the life of one man, but a crucial turning point in the history of the nation of Israel. Really, the burning bush marks the beginning of God's direct intervention into the affairs of history. That's what we need to understand. You see, my friends, we talk about this relationship between the person and the world, this huge topic. St. Francis once said, if we desire to sanctify society, we must first sanctify self. If we are going to understand what the task is all about, we must first embrace the gift. If we are going to achieve our goals, we must first wrestle with our identity in God. If the exterior is going to change, then first deal with the interior. Because in the end, my friends, the gift precedes the task. Our identity precedes the goal. Our interior life precedes our good doing in the exterior world. So again, as Moses becomes a significant player on the stage of salvation history, he certainly shows us the way, shows us the better way to change history. Remember what St. John Paul II once said, and I say remember because I talk about this a lot, that freedom itself is just not a series of chronological events, but the event of freedom the event of choosing one thing over another thing, the right from the wrong, the good from the evil, then and only then, my friends, will what needs to change, change. There is great significance in this story of the burning bush that we are set to explore. And it is a story that highlights the importance of the transformation of a nation on the heels of the transformation of a man. Oh, did this story impact future generations. Just not in the story of Old Testament Israel, but even on into the New Testament, right? The account of the burning bush was really central to the thinking of the gospel writers. Mark and Luke, for example, came to call this section of Scripture the bush portion, right? We're going to go into Mark chapter 12, verse 26, Luke chapter 20, verse 37. All right, with that, let us read. I'll read verses 1 to 12. We'll say 1 to 12. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Um, and just footnote here, the Ignatius commentary highlights this. Uh, possibly another name from Mount Sinai, but maybe, my friends, more likely the name of a region or 
mountain range that connects with the Sinai peak. Uh, Moses stands on the rock at Horeb in chapter 17, verse 6, but he does not arrive at Sinai until chapter 19, verses 1 to 2. Now, more collectively, my friends, Christian tradition identifies uh, the elevation as uh, Jabal Musa, which is uh, Arabic for the mountain of Moses, which rises, what, over 7,000 feet? So yeah, we can believe that that's Mount Sinai. At the very least, what we know is that it is, um, you know, the mountain of Moses, huh? the mountain of Moses. Okay, verse 2, we continue. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near. Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold... The cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring forth my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. Okay. We have some very rich verses there. Very (laughs) rich verses there. Um, All right. So after 40 years of sheep tending, which now makes what? Moses 80 years old. Moses' life is about to change dramatically. And might we hit the pause button there? ever so briefly. My friends, something big is about to happen at the least expected moment in the life of Moses. Let us get inside this text. Have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever had God invade your comfort zone, your routine? Have you ever been in a situation where something happened to you? Maybe that something was a near-death experience. I don't know. An experience that left such an impact upon you that you savored the gift of life just a little more, friendship just a little more, the food you taste just a little more, and most of all, your faith like never before. Well, in the case of Moses, it wasn't a near-death experience, but a direct encounter with God that left him forever changed. It was something that came out of nowhere. He was 80 years old. 
Shoot, for all we know, he was ready to retire in contemporary terms, huh? (laughs) Yet, isn't that always when God asks something great from us, when it's least expected? Here I'm reminded of the story that comes to us from a a conference that St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta spoke at. She was speaking to a very large group of people, and at the end of the conference, this elderly woman comes down the steps and onto the stage. She made it past the, the security guards. I suppose she wasn't <laughs> a threat to anyone. And she got to Mother Teresa and she says, Mother, Mother, whatever it is you call me to, my husband and I, we will surrender and be at the service of God. What is it that you want us to do? I trust that God is speaking through you now. Mother Teresa comes down from the podium, cups the face of this woman in her hands, and says to her, look into the eyes of your children and grandchildren and feed their spiritual poverty. In that moment, Mother Teresa gave this elderly woman and her husband a vocation that was unexpected, but she was ready to surrender. Maybe in her eyes, the eyes of this elderly woman, something greater. But however you cut it, whether she thought she was going to go to Calcutta, India, or, as Mother Teresa would have it, return home to be at the service of her children children or grandchildren, we are always at the service of God, and God is always asking something great from us. And as we begin this reflection into this great vocation, this great calling that is before Moses, let us appreciate that dynamic which again, I think it would be so easy to look over, that he was a man 80 years of age. Okay, so looking for richer pasture, we read, right? Moses led his father-in-law's flock to the west or backside of the wilderness to Mount Oreb. We read then that in the distance... Something caught the keen eye of Moses. And maybe that, that bush, as he saw it set aflame, snapped him out of his thoughts. At that point, all he would have saw was something burning in the distance. A more careful look proved it to be a bush. Hmm, he must have thought, right? What is that in the distance? Maybe initially this was not something in of itself that was caused for a stir. But as he drew near, as he drew near and he saw the bush unaffected by the flames, oh, what must have been going through his mind and heart as he saw the bush burn, but not burn up. Fascinating. St. Ignatius of Loyola says, get inside this text. Step into the shoes of Moses. What would you be thinking? And so I put that before you. What would you be thinking in this moment? Again, go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. The angel of the Lord. Who is this angel but one mediating the presence and voice of God to the world? It appears to him. Moses, my friends, as many commentaries highlight, is granted what we call a theophany, 
a visible and audible manifestation of divine glory. This is what Peter, James, and John saw at the Mount of the Transfiguration. He has this private encounter with the Lord in what but fire. And what does fire symbolize? What does the burning symbolize? Well, first and foremost, a sign of God's presence, a presence that speaks to his glory. Also in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, we see that this this fire, this burning, bespeaks God's judgment. Also, allegorically, the bush that blazes unharmed certainly points us also to the blessed Virgin Mary, the virgin birth, for the light of divinity within the virgin was born to a human life without withering the blossom of her virginity, as St. Gregory of Nyssa would put it. Huh? There you have God dwelling within the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and yet without corruption. So there's a lot to consider there in verse 2. The God of the burning bush is a holy God, and by holy we mean quite simply what but the sacred presence of the one true God. At first, yeah, the burning bush was but a curiosity, something novel to which Moses was drawn. Now the bush, the presence of God in the bush, becomes what but the object of fear and reverence. God calls to Moses, once, no, twice, in fact, Moses, Moses, and what does he say? Here am I, or here I am. Here I am. Isn't this interesting? What was the first question posed in the book of Genesis, which means what? But the first question posed in the whole Bible, but where are you? Do you remember that narrative? I think it was what, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, where Adam and Eve, they're hiding behind the fig leaves. Where are you? Is he asking Moses this question? No. No, because he says, here am I. He made himself available. He made himself present to God. I'm also reminded of Peter, John chapter 6, when he says to Jesus, to whom shall we go? Here am I. You know, my friends, we hide many things. We are not always honest with ourselves. But to say, here I am before God, is to say, I have nothing to hide. And this wasn't because he couldn't find you know, big enough fig leaves per se. No, <laughs> no. He was ready to render his heart to God. Hmm. All right. So then, what does God do? He warns Moses not to come any closer and instructed him to take off his sandals because the ground on which he stood was holy. And here, my friends, I want to turn our attention to Bishop Barron's work, Arguing Religion. A bishop speaks at Facebook and Google. If you are not familiar with this book, I really, really encourage you to pick it up. It's a short read. Arguing Religion, A Bishop Speaks at Facebook and Google by by Bishop Robert Barron. At the end of this book, he's reflecting into the burning bush, and he says something here that I just loved. On the heels of this verse, this is his reflection. The true God can never be grasped, controlled, ordered by the mind, or 
placed in neat categories. Rather, he does the controlling. Bishop Barron says, I have always savored the instruction given to Moses to take off his shoes. When one is shod, one can walk easily and confidently where one wants. He concludes, removing shoes makes a person vulnerable and receptive, which is the only proper attitude in the presence of God. I love that. What have we said about the word vulnerable? And I can never reinforce this enough. I have already used the phrase salvation history to talk about Moses and his role in history is to really talk about salvation history. And my dear friends, what does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, but that we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling? And how do we do that? But by first and foremost, becoming vulnerable. What do I mean? Well, let's look at this language, these words we use. Salvation comes from the Latin salvatio, its root salve. That translates as balm or healing balm. The word vulnerable comes from the Latin word vulneratio. It best translates as wound or open wound. Brothers and sisters, if we wish to allow God's salvific love to touch us, his healing balm to restore us, we must open up our wound to him and allow him to dress it. And we do this by becoming vulnerable. Okay, so very important point there as we reflect into Moses taking off his sandals, becoming vulnerable. Now, as we reflect upon the bush, we are also made to see that God in the burning bush is the God of Moses' forefathers, the God of the patriarchs, Israel's God. huh? He is the God who made a covenant with Abraham and reiterated that covenant to Isaac and Jacob. This is not a new and different God who is here or there made known to Moses, no, but the God of his forefathers, the God of Israel, which is to say this is not a new plan, but simply the outworking or outgrowth of the old plan or the plan that was set in motion back in Genesis 15. What did we we read in Genesis 15 in our study on the book of Genesis? Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. The God of the covenant is the God of mercy. The God of the burning bush is is the God of mercy. God's intention to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian bondage is motivated by his compassion for them. In what, what did we read there? In the midst of their affliction, verses 7 to 8, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I am concerned about their suffering. huh? So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And, and this is the role that Moses plays as mediator. The God of the burning bush is also an imminent God which is to say, directly involved with the affairs of his people, his chosen people, clearly here, and this is really the overarching truth, my friends, for this evening, 
God is taking a personal interest in the release of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. What's more, my friends, and this really starts to touch upon the reality of mediation, is that the God of the burning bush is a God who commissions people to participate in his purposes. While God is going to be directly involved in the deliverance of his people, he will do so through human instruments. Specifically, right, God has manifested himself to Moses because he intends to manifest himself through Moses. God's first words to Moses are, well, what did we just say? Moses, Moses. Although God indicated his personal involvement in the Exodus, I have come down to rescue them, he says in verse 8. It is Moses through whom these things will be accomplished. And thus, yes, we find Moses commissioned by God to return to Egypt to confront Pharaoh, as we had read there at the end, what, verses 11 and 12, and to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He was commissioned. Cum missio. You break that Latin down, uh, that translates as to be sent with. And this is the sign. I love that. When God says, this is your sign, that I'm with you. Isn't that enough that I'm with you? that you trust in me, that I have revealed myself to you in this bush that burns yet without corruption, without consumption? Isn't that enough, Moses? Amen to that. Okay. All right. Let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.